Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. And we are back. September was quite a month. I got married. I got married to Sarah, my partner of seven years. And the wedding was absolutely wonderful. It was everything I could hope for. We went on honeymoon. We went up to Victoria in Canada, which is very much a Pacific Northwest city, but also seems to be really into having been at one point part of the British Empire. They actually have a statue of Queen Victoria, which I guess makes sense because they're named after her, but it was still kind of weird. Um, Canada is beautiful. Now I'm back at home and I'm happy to be working on the show again. Um, this episode though has been extraordinarily difficult. Before I get into the episode proper, this is easily the most difficult show that I have done because talking about the Holocaust is scary. I mean, it just seems too big. It just seems too serious for somebody like me who likes things about, you know, non-existent mountain ranges and palindromes to talk about. But this is a show I've also wanted to do for a long time. Because I find this story to be particularly inspiring. This story is the story of maybe the most successful public protest of all time. And by total coincidence, I did not plan this. It's also a story that's all about marriage. It's a story that's all about the devotion of many people to their spouses. It happens in 1943 in Berlin. And by 1943, the Holocaust was well underway. Many Jews had been arrested and removed and deported from Germany to the death camps. But there were still some Jews left in Germany's capital city. Those Jews that had not been shipped off to the death camps tended to be Jewish men who were made to work in Berlin factories. And in 1943, there was some debate in the Nazi party about this arrangement. On one hand, having as many factory workers, and in this case slave labor, was considered fairly important. It was considered fairly essential to the war effort, especially because by that time Germany was in a bad way. 1943, they had just lost the Battle of Stalingrad to the Soviet Union. On the other hand, though, this meant that there were still Jews in Berlin, and plenty of people in the Nazi regime, most prominently for our purposes today, Joseph Goebbels, wanted to end that. So, in February of that year, Goebbels decided that Germany's capital would be the first city that had no Jews in it. And in what is now known as the Factory Action, or Fabrikaktion, if you're going to use the German, the Gestapo rounded up Berlin's remaining Jews, the ones being made to work in factories. A lot of them were immediately deported to death camps. However, of those Jews that were rounded up in February of 1943, there were between 1,500 to 2,000 of them who were, instead of being deported, were imprisoned inside the city of Berlin itself. They were interned inside an old Jewish community center with the address of Rosenstrasse 24. Rosenstrasse here meaning Rose Street. And if I am mispronouncing that, I apologize to any German speakers who might be cringing at the moment. Now, the reason that these men were imprisoned rather than deported is because many of them were married to non-Jewish women, women that the regime would have considered quote-unquote Aryan. 
And because of this arrangement, and because of that family relationship, that spousal relationship, they were not immediately disappeared. Now, this is something that I've seen a fair amount of disagreement on. Historians don't know whether or not the men who were imprisoned in the Rosenstrasse were going to be deported or were just going to remain there basically indefinitely. I haven't been able to find anything definitive. In fact, trying to answer that question is one of the things that I have been vexed by while researching this. But word spread among these men's wives that they had been arrested and rounded up and were being interned. And for a lot of their wives, as far as they were concerned, this was a death sentence. So many of these women who were involved in intermarriages, marriages between non-Jewish women and Jewish men, showed up outside of the internment center, and they said to the Gestapo, we would like our husbands back. And they were there in numbers, all at the start of it acting independently. This is not something that was organized. This was not something that had a leader or had flyers go out or anything like that. This was many, many people acting independently as individuals and coming to the same conclusion, showing up to check on their husbands and demand them back. Faced with the crowd of women outside Rosenstrasse 2-4, Goebbels did not release them, of course. So the next day, they were back. And once again, this crowd of people, this crowd of individuals that all had the same motivation, same demand, showed up again. And the day after that, they were back. And the day after that, and the day after that. And what had become a crowd of individuals who all had the same motivation became something more. It became organized. It became understood that they would all be there day after day after day. It became a single body with a single demand that stood there, put their foot down, and resisted. And what I find extra remarkable about this protest is not only that they were protesting Nazis, one of the most, if not the most deadly regimes that human history has ever known, but this was also in February and March. They were showing up every single day in the winter and in the cold and demanding that their loved ones be released. And they were also doing this while the RAF was bombing Berlin. So it's freezing cold. Your city is being bombed. Your spouse has been captured by Nazis and you show up anyway. You get up every single morning and you go outside the Rosenstrasse and you make the same demand day after day after day. I would like to believe that I would do the same thing for my wife, for my partner, if I was if I was tested. I think we all would. And eventually some foreign journalists got wind of the protest. They got news that dissent was on display in the middle of Berlin, in the middle of the German capital. And obviously this would not be good for the regime. Goebbels attempted to explain away the crowds by saying that this group of women, this group of women who are all standing in front of this former Jewish community center where several arrested Jewish men were being interned, well, they weren't there demanding their release. See, this was an ongoing protest, protesting the RAF bombings. I wonder how much of the foreign press actually bought that cover story. And the women kept showing up every day in the hundreds. Eventually, the Gestapo got sick of it. They threatened them with rifles. They said, disperse, or we will shoot. The protesters stayed. 
Goebbels then ordered machine guns to be set up facing the various demonstrators. He probably never intended to use them. He probably thought just getting out the big guns would be enough. They would be scared. They would scatter. But the protesters didn't. Instead, when the machine guns were set up, they shouted, Murderer! 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 They stood their ground in the cold of winter, in the chaos of bombings, literally before Nazi machine guns. And meanwhile, inside the Rosenstrasse, the men remained. Now, like I said, historians disagree as to whether or not they would have been deported. But it is a very real possibility, and as far as they were concerned, every single day could have brought the train ride that led them to die. But every single day, their loved ones were outside and kept that day from dawning. Now, there are probably two major questions you're asking yourself right now about the Rosenstrasse protest. First, you might be wondering how were these couples even allowed to be married? You might have assumed that in Nazi Germany, Jews and non-Jews were not allowed to get married. And you would be right, but we'll get to that in a moment. You're probably also wondering why the Gestapo didn't actually use those machine guns. Why didn't they just open fire on the protesters? Or have them arrested? Why didn't a totalitarian regime that had already arrested and killed several of its own citizens do the same thing with this group of protesters? Well, those answers are related. And in both cases, it has to do with how the Nazi regime interacted with popular opinion and with how it legitimized power. First, on the marriage issue. In 1935, Germany did indeed enact uh, race laws. They were known as the Nuremberg Laws. And among the Nuremberg Laws were prohibitions against marriage and sexual contact between Jews and so-called Aryans. However, one thing that the Nuremberg Laws didn't do was forcibly divorce intermarried couples. So Jews and non-Jews who were married already, well, they got to stay married. And this was because, at the time, divorce was still considered morally unacceptable for most German Christians, both the Protestant majority and the smaller Catholic minority. Those German Christians who were not okay with divorce, they were the ones who were supporting Nazism. They were the ones who were giving the regime its power. So, if the state had mandated that pre-existing intermarried couples divorce, that would have caused something of an outcry among at least some of the Nazi regime's Christian supporters. So, the state's commitment to anti-Semitism was bumping up against the pre-existing social values among its followers and its supporters that it had to navigate and make use of. Better to just ban new marriages and wait for the old ones to kind of, you know, expire. The state did put in incentives to discourage intermarriage uh, and to encourage divorces. And this was subtle. This was not nearly as, like, brutish as just mandating that people get divorced. So if you were a man and you wanted to join the civil service or the military, which were two ways that you could advance economically and socially— there were all kinds of restrictions, like you could not be married to a Jewish woman. Other institutions seeking the same kind of legitimacy as the respected military and civil service emulated these, putting in several informal regulations. So lots of men who had been married to Jewish women had to 
choose. They had to choose whether or not they wanted to advance socially and economically, or whether or not they wanted to demonstrate loyalty to their Jewish wives. And that drove apart some, but not all, intermarried families. And that was a major reason why by 1943, many of the intermarried couples in Berlin were Jewish men and non-Jewish women, because the couples that had been non-Jewish men and Jewish women, they had been disincentivized from staying together. Now, the other issue, why didn't the Gestapo just gun the protesters down and arrest them? So this might sound familiar to those of you who listened to my series on Fascist Italy earlier this year, and if you haven't listened to that yet, you should do so. I'm really proud of it. But fascism is totalitarian, but it's also, very importantly, populist. Uh, anymore, when we think about Nazis, we think about them in terms of military power or police power. We think of jackboots, we think of helmets, we think of guns and bayonets and all that. And there was all of that. But the real source of power behind all those helmets, jackboots, guns, bayonets, etc., was that the Nazi regime portrayed itself as representing the values of ordinary Germans. And they said, hey, look at all of this political, police, and military force. It is at the service of the will of the German people. Now, this is not representing the people in a democratic way, mind you, but in a kind of nebulous, emotional fashion. The will of the people was translated, supposedly, into the will of the state. If that sounds dumb to you, it's because it is. But there's kind of a twisted logic here. The regime needed to have something that it used as a source of legitimacy. Popular opinion was still deeply important to the Nazi regime, even though it was not a democratic regime. Now, the Nazis did not invent anti-Semitism. Not at all. Anti-Semitism existed prior to Hitler ever taking power. However, what they did was that they leveraged existing anti-Semitism into passing race laws and ultimately the Holocaust. And they were able to aggravate and increase and magnify a lot of the anti-Semitism that already existed. Um, I want to quote something from the historian that has studied the Rosenstrasse protest probably more than anyone else. Uh, his name is Nathan Stoltzfus, and he wrote a book about it called Resistance of the Heart. And this is Stoltzfus talking about how the regime used public opinion to justify race laws. He says, quote, Ministries and laws were not the first choice of the party that tried to shape the public perception of norms. To spread the Nazi conscience, the party also tried to display racism as if it had already become the reigning popular opinion. To prevent further intermarriages, the party orchestrated crowds to heckle and interfere at the wedding ceremonies of mixed couples. The task of controlling information and public opinion fell to the new ministry in the state, the one for propaganda. Propaganda minister Goebbels organized anti-Jewish crowds to shape the opinions of lawmakers and a general public. The boycott of Jewish businesses on April 1st, 1933, for example, had been an effort to convince state ministries that the German people themselves were hostile to Jews, and thus that the laws must also be so. In October 1935, a sympathetic court ruled that the public pillory of Jewish friends was justified because it is, quote, the duty of every German citizen to do everywhere what he can to push back Jewish influence in public life, unquote. 
The regime was eager to portray racism as a natural, God-given order that the laws must mirror, unquote. So the Nazis needed popular support, and the perception of popular support, and their creation of popular support to justify their policies. The supposed will of the German people was the power source, justification, and excuse for anti-Semitic and racist laws. And Nathan Stoltzfus is not the only one who believes this. Another person who was very aware of this was Joseph Goebbels. This is what he said about it. Goebbels said, quote, The German government is in this matter in absolute and total agreement with the German people. The Jewish question will be resolved in short order in a way that satisfies this sentiment of the German people. That's the will of the German people. That's the way the German people want it. And we are only executing their will, unquote. What the Rosenstrasse protests did was take away a lot of that perception. It was an incident, albeit a single one, where the party could not point to gestures of popular will as a justification for their policies. Popular will was right there in front of them on a daily basis saying that they were wrong. And this is also an instance where the fact that it was, quote unquote, Aryans who were protesting does kind of matter here. Nathan Stoltzfus in his book did a really good job of interviewing people who were actually at the Rosenstrasse protest. Um, in particular, he talked to a woman named Charlotte Israel, whose husband Julius was imprisoned in there. And Charlotte Israel noted that something that probably did her a few favors was that she was tall, blonde, and looked like the kind of woman who was on Nazi propaganda posters. And so seeing the supposed source of legitimacy for the regime in the street saying no would have been jarring. It's one thing if, say, somebody from another country or somebody who was already designated as an enemy was protesting, but to see somebody who, quote unquote, should have been supporting the Nazis saying no to them. And you might also be wondering, well, weren't there other big protests? Uh, lots of messed up things happened in Nazi Germany. Uh, weren't there people in the streets saying no to them earlier? And the answer to that is not really. Um, a protest like this was unusual for Nazi Germany. For example, on Kristallnacht, the massive pogrom in 1938 that smashed a bunch of windows of Jewish businesses, started a bunch of fires, and inaugurated a full-on reign of terror didn't have a lot of popular pushback. Kristallnacht started with a bunch of party operatives, some in their uniforms and some in civilian clothes, causing a bunch of chaos. And the public, instead of saying no, joined them and lended them legitimacy. And the policies that spread after Kristallnacht, well, it mattered that ordinary Germans said yes instead of saying no. But this is an instance where all that rage-filled public opinion that the Nazis needed so badly was denied them. And when it was denied them, there were results. In March of 1943, the men who were imprisoned in the Rosenstrasse were released. Instead of deporting them, instead of gunning down their wives, instead of making a mass arrest out in the street, Joseph Goebbels, one of the most evil and virulent anti-Semites that the world has ever known, told them to leave and take off their yellow stars and just go away. They survived. 
The men inside survived. Their wives, who had braved cold and bombing and possible arrest or death, they also survived. Now, World War II is the single most tragic and violent and horrible incident of human history ever, and the Holocaust in particular is the worst part of that, but this is one tiny little bit of hope, and because it's surrounded by such high stakes and such potential tragedy, that makes the Rosenstrass protest, in my mind, probably the single most inspiring public action ever. And it's a great reminder that saying no and standing up and being out there and demonstrating against the forces of hate, even when they're Nazis, that works. Showing up in the streets and being brave can work. The women who protested every day outside the Rosenstrasse taught us as much. Thank you for returning to the podcast after our break. As always, this is a listener-supported show. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a supporter. Thank you, everyone who supports the show on a regular basis. Uh, I am on social media, Twitter, at Joe Streckert. I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Next week's topic isn't going to be nearly so heavy. It's October, so we're going to start talking about spooky Halloween-type stuff for the rest of the month. Really looking forward to that. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. (laughs) 